Hello, readers. Matt Ridley is a journalist, businessman, member of Britain's House of Lords, and a best-selling author. His new book is How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Matt, thank you for the time. The foundation of this book is not invention, but innovation. To provide context for the rest of this conversation, what is innovation? Innovation is turning an invention into something that's practical and affordable and usable for everybody. So it's the process of making an invention go viral. It's commonly thought that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, but you point out that at least 12 people published or patented the idea before Edison, and 21 can claim to have drastically improved its design. So why does Edison get the credit? Well, Edison is a very good example of someone who was more of an innovator than an inventor. He took the concept of the light bulb, which, as you say, wasn't particularly original. About 21 different people had had the idea in different places. But he turned it into something practical that would work properly and that could be relied upon. In particular, the difficult problem to overcome was how to make a light bulb where the filament didn't burn out, even in a vacuum. And the key here was to make the filament out of the right kind of material that worked really well in terms of glowing, but lasting for a long time. Edison did 5,000 different experiments, looked at 5,000 different types of plant material until he settled on a type of Japanese bamboo that made the perfect light bulb filament. And as a result, he got light bulbs that would last a long time. And that's really why we remember him as the innovator of the light bulb. Edison famously said, invention is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And I think that's what he meant, is that you need to do a heck of a lot of trial and error to make something reliable, affordable, and available. What is mold juice, and why is it evidence that a lot of practical work is necessary to turn a scientific discovery into a useful innovation? A man named Alexander Fleming discovered mold juice, as he called it. We now know it as penicillin. And he discovered it by accident in 1928 when he went on holiday and left a Petri dish on a lab bench. And when he came back, he noticed that where the fungus was growing, the bacteria were killed. And he thought, well, maybe the fungus has a chemical in it that kills the bacteria. And he did some experiments on it, but he didn't do much. And it was only about 11 years later that a group of scientists in Oxford picked up on this and began to do a series of experiments about whether this mold juice could actually be used as a medication. Originally, they thought it would be something that you smeared on wounds on the outside of your body, a topical ointment. But they later discovered that it worked even better if you swallowed it and got it into your bloodstream or injected it even better. And so penicillin was born. And that came about because of a lot of work to take the original discovery and turn it into something practical and useful. And by the end of World War II, it was saving lives on a grand scale among people who got wounded. It was also curing a lot of cases of gonorrhea among soldiers. Innovation often involves usage preceding understanding. Do you have a favorite example of this from the public health sector? Yes, I think the best example of usage preceding understanding is vaccines. 
We've been using vaccines for 300 years, in fact, longer, because they reached the West via some very clever people who spotted what was going on in Ottoman Turkey, in particular a woman who brought it to the UK called Lady Mary Wortley Montague. She had discovered this practice in Constantinople whereby women gave children a small dose of smallpox from someone who had recovered and that protected the child against smallpox. Where the habit came from before that, possibly China, possibly Africa, we don't know. So we don't know who invented the idea of inoculation, but it was used in increasingly sophisticated way for hundreds of years as a way of preventing disease. And it wasn't until the late 19th, early 20th century that we begun to understand why it worked, that the immune system, the whole idea of antibodies being raised against the virus or the bacterium came to be understood. So it's a very nice example of science following technology rather than the other way around. Speaking of vaccinations, you compare electronic cigarettes to vaccinations. How so? Yes, I think it's very clear that electronic cigarettes are saving lives. They are an example of a technology that reduces harm. That is to say, it's not harmless, but it is less harmful than the technology it replaces, in this case, smoking. It's very hard to get people to give up smoking. There are various ways of doing it, but it turns out that taking up vaping of nicotine electronic cigarettes instead is a very good way of getting people to give up smoking. And some two or three million people have now done this in the UK in particular, which is, has a very permissive regulatory system about vaping, but does regulate the products to make them as safe as possible, which is key. And vaping was invented by a Chinese scientist, Hon Lick, in the uh, early 2000s, who was trying to give up smoking. That was why he invented it, to try and find something that was less harmful than smoking. It's actually similar to vaccination because what you're doing in vaccination is giving someone a less harmful disease. In the case of the original vaccination where it was giving people cowpox so that they didn't catch smallpox, it was giving them a less harmful thing to prevent a more harmful thing. And that's what vaping does. It replaces smoking with vaping, which has a far, far lower risk factor in terms of the effect on your health. I really enjoyed in this book how you busted myths on common thoughts on who invented what. We already talked about Thomas Edison. He was not the inventor of the light bulb. Henry Ford, not the inventor of the internal combustion engine that cars ran on back in the day. But Wilbur and Orville Wright do get their proper credit for the first powered controlled flight. How did they succeed where others, including the U.S. government, failed? The story of flight is a really good cautionary tale about how to do innovation and how not to do innovation. Samuel Langley was a very distinguished scientist and astronomer, the head of the Smithsonian Institution, and he designed a flying machine. And he got a huge grant from the US government to do it. He kept his idea secret, didn't talked to other people very much about it. He built the whole thing in one go rather than testing lots of different parts of the machine before he put it together. And he launched it in a fanfare of publicity and it crashed straight into the Potomac River and his reputation never recovered and the US government was humiliated. Ten days later, on an island off North Carolina, the Wright brothers from Dayton, Ohio, did get a powered machine into the air, not very far, but a little bit and a bit more the next day and so on. 
And they had done it all right. They had studied every detail, every part of the aeroplane, the wings, the shape of the wings, the steering mechanisms, which proved to be very difficult. They'd studied gliders. They'd studied in wind tunnels. They'd corresponded with lots of different people around the world who were thinking about powered flight. And so they'd gathered together as much evidence as they could from as many sources. And they were bicycle mechanics. And they were effectively adapting pre-existing machines. It's not an accident that their first flyer looks a bit like a bicycle with wheels. So they knew that innovation was a question of trial and error and sharing ideas, whereas Langley thought it was a question of brilliance and keeping things secret. Why did France ban the growing of potatoes in the mid-1700s, and how did innovation fuel the popularity of spuds in the Western Hemisphere in modern times? The potato is an innovation that I write about. It may not feel like an innovation to us, but of course it came from the Americas to the old world with the uh, conquistadors from South America. It's an Andean plant originally, and it had to be introduced as a novelty in Europe. And in most places where it was introduced, there was a lot of resistance to it, that this is a bad idea. This is a dangerous, poisonous, toxic plant. Why are we eating it? Indeed, some of its relatives are toxic. Deadly nightshade is a close relative of the potato. But also, there was a strange rumor that plants caused or cured the diseases that they looked like sort of rotting potato looks like the fingers of a person with leprosy (laughs) so there was a rumor that people got leprosy from potatoes so a lot of people were reluctant to take up potatoes and france in particular was slow to do so and germany had picked up the potato quite a lot earlier the prussian state in particular and it kept winning wars against france in the 18th century partly because potatoes are a very good way of feeding armies And so some French innovators were desperate to try and persuade the French to change their mind and take up the growing of potatoes, in particular a man named Parmentier. And he finally got the king to plant some potatoes, persuaded Marie Antoinette to promote potatoes just in time for them to have their heads cut off. So that didn't help them, but it did help the French nation. It seems like we've seen a huge increase in luggage with wheels over the last 10 to 15 years or so, Matt. How does that invention and innovation prove that innovation only really catches on when the world is ready for it? I looked hard when I was writing my book for examples of technologies that came along much later than they should have done. I think the cell phone is an example of this, actually, because we probably could have had them at least 10 years earlier if we'd freed up the electromagnetic spectrum. But the one that everybody thinks of and that at first sight seems to be a really good example of a technology coming much too late that should have come much earlier is wheels on suitcases. And indeed, the person who first put wheels on suitcases had a real struggle to persuade luggage manufacturers to adopt his idea. Most of them said, no, I don't see the point of it. But when you think about it, putting a wheel on a suitcase in the 1960s or 70s isn't as useful as doing so today. Wheels would have been heavier, taken up more space, but also airports and train stations were smaller and there were many more porters offering to carry your bags in those days. So it's only when airports get really big and there aren't porters around 
and you've got light aluminium wheels, that it sort of makes sense to sacrifice some of the space in a suitcase to put wheels on. So I think it's quite a nice example of a very obvious, relatively low-tech innovation that comes along around the time when the world is ready for it and not before. Usually a person is either an innovator or an inventor, but occasionally you get somebody who is great at both. Why is Guglielmo Marconi a great example of this with his contributions to radio? Yeah, Marconi is really the pioneer of radio worldwide, and he jolly well did invent a lot of the technologies of radio from scratch based on scientific knowledge that he gleaned about electromagnetic waves in the air. He relentlessly pursued the idea that it would be possible to transmit messages wirelessly through the air. And in doing so, he might have been the original inventor who then sat back and watched others turn his idea into a practical proposition. But actually, he was a shrewd businessman as well, which is unusual in inventive types. And he set up a business that became the dominant radio company in the UK and around the world, and for a long time was a significant force in the development of the business of radio right through into the 1930s. And he was slow to realize that what radio was going to do was allow broadcasting. He thought it would be mostly about communication, you know, in the same way that we use wireless telephony today. He didn't realize that it was going to be used for one person to transmit a message to lots of different people, as you and I are doing right now. And so I think he didn't get everything right And his ideas were taken up with enthusiasm by Mussolini and used by the dictator to spread his message. And this was true of a lot of radio, is that it did help the rise of the dictators. And Mussolini made Marconi a Marquis. So it wasn't all good what he invented. Mussolini had got the idea from seeing what Marconi had done with the Pope, interestingly. The the Vatican adopted radio quite early. So it's a really interesting story, but it's a story of both an invention and an innovation that actually becomes used by everybody. Why is the dog one of man's greatest inventions, and how did that happen? The dog doesn't sound like an invention, does it, let alone an innovation? It's an animal. I mean, how can you invent an animal? But when you think about it, the turning of the wolf into the dog as a tool to help mankind is just like the invention of the steam engine or the search engine or something like that. It's the development of an innovation. It will have happened gradually. Unlike those examples, it happened a very, very long time ago, at least 25,000 years ago. We now think nearer to 40,000 years ago. So very early human beings found that having tame wolves living with them brought some advantages. Now, what those advantages are, we don't fully know. It might have been that the tame wolves hanging around would have given early warning of an attack by a neighboring band or something like that. Or it might have been that they helped track down wounded animals if you were hunting them or something like that. Either way, it was probably a mutually beneficial arrangement. In other words, the wolves got to eavesdrop on human society and share some of the kills that people made. So it might have been the dogs that took the initiative. 
It might have been that the first wolves were ones that decided that hanging around human encampments and getting bolder and bolder with each generation and less and less afraid of human beings had its advantages for them, the wolves. But either way, it's a very nice example of, in this case, a genetic change that was brought about in the wolf to make it more puppy-like, make it more juvenile, make it more playful, make it more domesticated and friendly, and, of course, eventually to breed all sorts of different dog breeds, each with its own particular behavioral characteristics. Throughout the course of this conversation, I am drinking coffee, Matt. I love coffee. I'm certainly not alone in that opinion. Why does the history of Java prove that a common component of innovation is resistance? We think that we love innovation and that we adopt it readily. But actually, the history of innovation shows that there is a lot of resistance to most innovations. Vested interests or general neophobia leads us to say, we don't want this new habit. And a good example of this is the invention of coffee, which came into Europe from Arabia and into Arabia from Africa sometime in the 1500s. And wherever it turned up, rulers tried to ban it. They tried to forbid the drinking of coffee. They tried to prevent the building of coffee houses, and they usually failed. And the reasons they were banning it were twofold. One, because they were being lobbied by other industries like the wine and beer industry, which didn't like this new competitor. And those industries sometimes hired doctors to write pseudoscientific reasons as to why coffee was bad for you and should be banned on those grounds. It dried up the liver and the kidneys, you know, that all sorts of nonsense was said about coffee. But the other reason that rulers didn't like coffee was because coffee was drunk in coffee houses. On the whole, people didn't drink it much at home because, you know, grinding up the coffee beans and things took machinery. So people went to coffee houses to drink coffee. And when they were there, they sat around talking to other people. And when they sat around talking to other people, sometimes the topic of conversation turned to whether or not the ruler was doing a good job as ruler, whether he was the king or the sultan or whatever. And sometimes the opinion was that he wasn't doing a good job. And the king didn't like that. And in 1672, when King Charles II tried to ban coffee houses in London, he was very explicit about this. He said he did not like the fact that in coffee houses, people were lying about him. He didn't (laughs) like the fact that they were sources of fake news, in other words. So there was a tremendous campaign to stop coffee for many centuries, and it always failed. Coffee was too enjoyable for people, and it just couldn't be kept away. Thank goodness we came around on that one, and eventually it was too powerful to ban altogether. Failure is crucial for success. You proved this with the stories of Amazon and Google. What about for you, as someone who has found success in numerous walks of life? What is your greatest failure, and what lessons did you take away from that moment? I have had many failures in my life. I've tried to do things and and done them badly. I was involved in banking in the run-up to the great financial crisis and it was a disastrous episode in my life and those of others and a cause of huge regret but you're quite right one learns a lot from such experiences i would probably make quite a good banker now (laughs) because (laughs) I, i can learn the lessons and one of the lessons i learned was to be looking in the right direction at the risks 
because we were a heavily regulated institution and the regulators were discussing risks with us very closely over many years and we were paying a huge amount of attention to credit risk, to the risk that people would not pay back loans, which was the risk we were told to pay attention to by the regulator. In fact, that turned out not to be a high risk in our case and there was very little default on the loans that we were issuing. But we were running a different risk, a liquidity risk, very strongly. And neither we nor the regulator saw that. We took comfort from the fact that the regulator wasn't worried about liquidity risk, so we therefore weren't worried about liquidity risk. That taught me a very strong lesson, that regulation can actually do harm if it causes people to focus on the wrong risks. I enjoyed your coverage of the evolution of artificial intelligence. Do you think that the continued innovation of AI will eventually become a threat to mankind? I'm optimistic about AI. I think it's much more likely to be a beneficial technology than a harmful one. I think all the stories about how it's going to turn into super generalist artificial intelligence that will take over the planet and decide to dispense with us human beings are pretty far-fetched. And the circumstances under which these will happen are very unlikely. We've heard scare stories about automation and about computers for generations. I mean, the film 2001, in which Hal leaves Dave out in space, which was a spooky example of a computer that refused to be turned off and decided it was better than human beings. That's over 50 years old, that film. And we've had endless warnings of this kind of thing. And actually what happens is that the artificial intelligence we introduce augments and assists human intelligence. It doesn't replace it and it doesn't threaten it. It should be perfectly easy for us to adopt artificial intelligence in a way that is beneficial and not harmful. Yes, we've got to be careful. And yes, there will be minor harms along the way. But the idea of a machine taking over the planet and getting rid of us, which people speculate about, does not at the moment convince me. Last thing, Matt, is China setting itself up to become the global leader of innovation for decades to come? I think if you look at the history of innovation, it tends to happen in one place at any one time. So Renaissance Italy in the 1400s, China in the 1000s, Britain in the 1900s and 1800s, and America in the 20th century. Where is it happening today? Well, a lot is still happening in America and other places. But a lot is happening in China. China is way ahead of us in the West in many ways, particularly with respect to the consumer use of digital technologies and so on. It's innovative. It's not just catching up with the West. And this is a strange position to be in because this is not a free country. It's an authoritarian regime becoming more so with every passing day. And that seems to be incompatible with the sort of free experimentation that you need for innovation. Fortunately, for the moment, Chinese entrepreneurs are fairly free to do what they want as long as they don't annoy the Communist Party. But I think it is an issue that in the 21st century, we may be placing most of our innovation eggs in the basket of a regime that is not wedded to democratic freedom and freedom of expression and thought. So I don't think China's place in the sun will last forever. I think the bushfire will move somewhere else. Might be India, might be back to America, might be South America, might be back to Europe even. So let's hope that we can keep innovation going because it's delivering enormous benefits to human beings.
Matt Ridley is a journalist, businessman, member of Britain's House of Lords, and best-selling author. His new book is How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Matt, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you very much.